Well, it is a pleasure to be with you tonight. It's always a pleasure to be here at First Baptist St. John's. My family feels very welcome here, as we've visited many times over the years. And um, uh, it's, it's just good to have a church that you know you can come to that teaches the Word, and you're in a good place here. I always encourage, especially today, a number of people knew about the session that's going to be tonight and in a couple weeks, where we're going to be addressing these questions of how we got the Bible. And it was a bit particularly encouraging to me because they said, I'm really interested to learn about that because I honestly think that this is the apologetic question of our day. Now, there's a lot of big issues, but typically when people are running away from the truth, running away from the doctrines of Christianity, often they just point back to the Bible and say, how can you trust this book? Well, we're going to be answering some of those questions tonight and in a couple weeks My aim is that you would come away from these sessions with your faith encouraged and you would have the beginnings of answers. Now there's no way in two short sessions like this that you're going to be able to come away with every answer to answer every skeptical objection to the Bible. But hopefully you will come away with a certain sense and a reassurance of what we have in God's word, and you might know where to start in answering some of those questions that come from a skeptical coworker or family member or someone in the community. So what you're gonna do tonight is we're gonna cover the broad question, how did the Bible get all the way from Moses to the modern translation that we had preached from this morning? We're gonna cover a big broad question, and then in a couple weeks, we're gonna get back to a more narrow question. How do we know that we have the very words that the prophets and apostles wrote down. Okay, So tonight it's going to be broad, and in a few weeks we'll cover a more narrow question, but I think a very important one, and one that you'll want to be here for as well. So Lord willing, we can have this study together. But since we are going to go on a journey through history, I thought that one of the best ways we could do that was to start with a little video introduction to how we got the Bible from Moses to modern translations.
בראשית ברא אלוהים את השמיים ואת הארץ, והארץ הייתה תוהו ובוהו וחושך על פני תהום, ורוח אלוהים מרחפת על פני המים. ויאמר אלוהים, יהי אור, ויהי אור. Right from the very beginning, we have God speaking. And God said, let there be light. And yet, right from the beginning, we don't have the Bible, do we? God spoke to Adam. God spoke to Abraham. God spoke to Noah. God spoke to many people before we ever have written copies that we call the Bible. So, what we're going to do tonight is actually we have to jump forward in history from the beginning quite a ways. We're going to cover the top 10 events that get us from Moses to our modern Bibles. Now, that's probably an important question. Why are we starting with Moses? Hopefully, if you received a handout, it has some of these dates on there, so you don't have to feel like you need to write everything down tonight. And if you didn't get one, you can grab one on your way out, which has a lot of Uh, outline material on it for you to take home with you. But right from the very beginning, we have this idea of Moses being the author of the first five books, sometimes known as the Pentateuch. And I like to refer to it as the essential mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. Maybe every single word in there is not from Moses, but what we have at the heart of those five books was given to us by God through a man named Moses. Moses. Now, how do we know this? Does this make any sense? Let's look at some external piece of evidence that Moses is the one who originated the writing down of God's word. First of all, we know that he was a prince in Egypt. That would mean he had received an education, that he knew language, not just one language, probably many languages. He was also instructed in leadership. And at that time, he was well acquainted with a certain piece of technology that we don't think of as technology today. We think of these kinds of things as technology. But papyrus was something that was being used in those days, and that was a new way to produce paper, which, not exactly paper, not this kind of paper, but papyrus to be written on out of the reeds in Egypt, where he came from. And internally in the Bible, Over and over and over again, you've seen it said that Moses wrote. So I'm in a group where I know that this is, a, is not much of a debate. Did Moses write the first books of the Bible? But we have good reason to believe that he did. For example, right here we have in Deuteronomy 31, it says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book! of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there for a witness against you. So he didn't just write down a few words. Moses wrote something that could be called a book and it had to be put in a special place. Now, uh, there is a question that comes up as we discuss Moses working this. If you see on your handouts there, I think I put the date 1446 as the time of the Exodus and yet... He's recording events in Genesis that happened thousands of years before him. So an interesting question comes up. Was Moses working with ancient documents? Maybe you've never thought of that question before. And we don't have to necessarily come down on a hard answer, but I do want to expose you to that question. First of all, in Genesis 5.1, we do have a reference to a book of Adam, 
which is the possibility that it could be a hard copy book, but it could also just mean the genealogy that followed, but that genealogy could very well have been written down. But if we thought technology in Moses' day was a piece of papyrus, we kind of had this image of people before the flood as sort of comic book kind of cavemen, don't we? Just, you know, living in animal skins and kind of living out in the wilderness in little pockets, that sort of thing. That's kind of what we've been taught to think about the ancient world. And yet that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible talks about technological abilities that were there before the flood. Listen to this verse from Genesis 4. Adah bore Yaval, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. I know some of you from around here know that livestock don't just occur out of nowhere. There's quite a bit of work and development that goes into the keeping of livestock. His brother's name was Yuval, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Well, you don't just go out and find a lyre hanging on a tree. You have to create these things and then learn how to string them in such a way that they create distinct pitches, and that's a form of technology and industry to create these things. Zillah also bore Tuvalcain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And this is in Genesis chapter 4. Okay? So there's a lot of industry going on, but maybe the biggest icon of this, I, I'm coming from Kentucky, is the ark. In Genesis chapter 6, we're, we're told this. God is talking to Noah and says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits or 450 feet. Its breadth is 50 cubits or 75 feet. And its height is 30 cubits or 45 feet. Make a roof for the ark and finish it with a cubit above and set a door in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third deck. 45 feet high, timber structure that's going to float through the flood. I would say that's a fair bit of technology and industry that existed long ago. So, when we have to ask the question, could Moses have written these books? Could Moses have possibly received ancient documents from the time before the flood? That's entirely possible. That's entirely possible. Now, whether or not he actually did, God could clearly have given him these stories that could have been passed down in an oral manner. I'm not discounting that as a possibility, but maybe you've never thought about the possibility that Moses received documents and had a library, something like this, on board the ark with him. Now, just to end, as we're finishing this point number one, the, the things that Moses was commanded to write, we need to think of them in terms of them being covenant documents. When we say exodus, we're talking about an event. We're talking about the going out. We're talking about God taking a people who were in bondage, bringing them out, and then making them his people. And what he does in that is he wants to write down the history of how he came into relationship with them. And now that they have a relationship or a covenant, they're going to need to define the terms of that relationship. So what Moses is doing at this pivotal event in history is he's writing down the history leading up to how Israel got to Egypt, that's the book of Genesis, what God did in Egypt to rescue his people, and then he starts to give the stipulations or the commandments that tell the people, now that you're God's people, this is how you should live. So you can see how what Moses is creating here is 
a covenant document. Moses was commanded to write these things by God. God himself actually wrote them down. All ancient covenants were written. They were taken and they were put on two, two identical pieces and one king would take it back to his country and one king would take it back to his country. In this case, the king, God himself, is saying, write it down. He actually gives him two tablets of stone that God wrote with his own hand and said, well, you only have one house of God, so go put both tablets in there. Okay? So Moses was doing exactly what ancient covenants did. And then Moses read the book of the covenant to the people. All right? So why do we spend so much time here? I just want to impress that point on you, that the Exodus event, God redeeming his people, marks the beginning of God's word being written down. All right, we're going to speed things up a little bit here. The second top 10 event I want to put on your radar is the kingdom, or about 1,000 BC, about 400 some odd years after the time of Moses. Now, what's so important about the kingdom? Well, in the kingdom you had prosperity, and prosperity leads to production. When you have peace, when you have prosperity and wealth, you can produce more things. And what kind of examples do we get coming out of the kingdom? David is writing. We get the recorders and the scribes. So whereas Moses was having to write these things down as they wandered throughout the wilderness, here you have people that are being employed by the king to write records down about what's happening among God's people. You also have Solomon and his Proverbs being written down and copied for future generations. In uh, Proverbs 25, 1, there you see it says, And these are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, so Hezekiah was after Solomon many years. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah copied. Okay? So during that time, they were taking old documents that were wearing out, that were hundreds of years old, and they were copying faithfully what was written on them so they could be passed on to future generations. But unfortunately, as you know from the history of the Bible, I'm sure you've learned in Sunday school, all the way up to the faithful Bible teaching here in this church, that there were many dark years in the time of the kingdom, such that they had even lost the book of the covenant. It was supposed to be in the temple, like you can see in this picture here, and it had been lost. And they were doing renovations on the temple, and someone discovered it and brought it to the king and read it to him. And in reading it to him, there was a restoration, there was a revival that took place. Let me read this for you from 2 Kings chapter 23. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Okay? So the king was so convicted by hearing this for the first time in his life that we've been unfaithful to this. How, how, did we, how did we lose this? And so he wanted to restore right worship among his people. So the kingdom, whereas the exodus was the beginning of God's word being written down, the kingdom was a sustained platform for the preservation, remember the copying and passing it on, and the production of new scripture. That happened during this period in Israel's time. So knowing your Bible history, you probably know the next major event. 586, we get the fall of Jerusalem, we get the exile, and then we get the return. And this is important for a number of reasons. For the reason of composition, compilation, and then the changing of times that happen. First of all, compositions. 
obviously we have books that were written during this time, right? We have new books, the prophetic messages of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and others. We have the prophetic histories being written, okay? They're looking back, and they're trying to explain how this came to us. Interestingly, in a lot of those, you get written down things like, and more is written in the book of the kings of, of Judah. So in other words, all this stuff that the scribes and secretaries of the kings have been written down, the prophets are pulling from to write a prophetic history. What we have in our Bibles is a prophetic history. It's not every bit of information about the history of Judah and Israel, but it's what God wanted us to have through the hand of the prophets. These were being written during this time. Then we also have the exilic books, right? You couldn't have them written before the exile, so Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra. And then even some of the Psalms talk about coming back to the land. So new books are being written during this time, so that's obviously an important time in the life of Israel. Interesting, have you noticed? When are these books mainly being written? We get the first five books being written at the time of God saving his people out of Egypt. We get a few things being written in the middle, but then a lot of it gets written again when God saves his people out of exile, right? So surrounding these major events of God redeeming his people, bringing them back to himself, is when we get the scriptures being written down to record that important history. This is something we don't talk about quite as much, that during this time is probably when a lot of compilation took place in what we have in our Old Testaments today, what we call the Old Testament. This was probably the work of a man named Ezra, who was a scribe, and the hand of God was upon him, and he comes back to restore right worship in Israel, but he also is working with the people to read the scriptures, and in that process, many believe that he was copying and helping to put things together. If you've noticed in the book of Psalms, it's arranged in books one, two, three, four, five, similar to the first five books of the Bible right? They didn't just happen magically that way. There were a lot more psalms than those 150 that we have in five books, and yet it was during this time that they got arranged into the five books that we have them in today. We also get some clarifying references inserted. For example, in Genesis 48, 7, we get this verse, ask for me. When I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, and then in your Bible, it probably has in parentheses, that is Bethlehem, okay? So in a thousand years, we as Americans don't even really understand this, in a thousand years, the names of some places had changed. And it's very likely that in some of these manuscripts, for the sake of clarification, at this point in history, this prophetic point in history, some of these clarifications were made for future generations. Lastly, we have the updating of the script. I'm going to show you something here to help illustrate this for you. If you look at a Hebrew Bible today, what most pastors study in seminary, it will look something like this. This is the script that's used in Israel today. This is how most people think of Hebrew. This is actually Aramaic block script or Aramaic square script. Now think Aramaic. What's what's Aramaic? Where was that in the ancient world? Well, Aramaic was the language of Babylon. When was Israel in Babylon? During the time of the exile. So during the time of the exile, they become acquainted with the writing system of their enemies and actually begin adopting that. And as you can see here, this is what Hebrew looked like during the time of David. Very different. 
It looks more like Phoenician. It looks more like the other Canaanite languages from that area. And yet today, what you see on your left there is what we read. So somehow, in the copying of ancient manuscripts, the alphabet was switched. Now, I don't want you to think that any funny things are going on here. You can see one, two, three letters at the first, and one, two, three letters at the first. So they weren't changing the language at all. It's exactly Hebrew in both. It's just a different alphabet that's being used to write it down. And yet this is what's happening here, likely under the supervision of Ezra. Interestingly, we only have one copy of scripture written like this. And it's written on a silver scroll that's about this big that was rolled up, put inside a pendant that a woman would wear. And that was from roughly the late 7th century, right before the time of the exile. And that was found in a tomb near Jerusalem. So all scripture we have today, other than that one little verse, is written like this because it was updated for us in the manuscripts that we have. So the exile was a very important time in helping us get to the Bibles that we have today. There was also important changes happening during this time. Prophecy had ceased. In the book of Maccabees, it records it this way, and there was a great affliction in Israel such as had not been since the day that a prophet was not seen among them. So in other words, there was a time when they knew prophets stopped being among them. And there was great affliction before that, but they were experiencing something like that in their day. The book of Maccabees was an intertestamental book. It was a historical book. There's some valuable information in there, and yet we don't consider it part of our Bible. And historically, the Jews never considered it part of their sacred scriptures either. It was an important book, recording some of their history from right before the time of Jesus. And yet it was never a sacred book that they kept in the temple. There were other books written during this time. Also during this time, we get the Hebrew Bible for the first time being translated into another language. You see, because in the exile, Jews had gone everywhere in the ancient world. And some of them, it was hard for them to speak and understand Hebrew anymore. And so down in Egypt, they translated the Bible into Greek, which was the language of most of the Mediterranean area. Also during this time, you may have heard of a group called the Essenes, and you saw them copying in the video earlier. If you remember those group of men bent over with their little oil lamps, okay? Different groups had different theologies and different hopes and aspirations. They began to separate, and so many of them began copying scriptures on their own. So it was not just something done by official groups, but there were groups copying things outside of it today. And we have a copy from that group called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you've probably heard of. Okay, that was written, just before, written down just before the time of Jesus. So the exile was a very important time in the history of the Bible because it served to complete and compile, okay? The exile was a time when the Bible was completed and compiled as Jesus and the apostles would know it, all right? So, Jesus and the apostles come on the scene. And what we get after, remember, from our first part, we had most of the Bible being written during the Exodus, a time of God's great salvation. The next major moment in history we get a lot written is the time of the exile and the return, a time of God's great salvation. And when are we going to get more written? After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a time of God's greatest and final work of salvation. Does that make sense? 
You see how that's working through history? That as these major events happen, it's being written down for people to remember the history and they're being taught how to live in light of that. So we have eyewitness accounts that are eventually written down in documents. We have teachings of apostles. Think of them as covenant ministers. They begin to circulate in written form and be recognized by other people as being scripture. You're familiar with that verse in Peter where he talks about the writings of Paul and the other scriptures. Okay? So they're already starting to recognize the writings of apostles as scripture. Koine Greek also becomes the language of the church that time. So you can see why it's so important that right before that, the Old Testament had been translated into Greek because now the whole Christian church was beginning to use that. Now, when we look at this, we think of this as the Bible. We think of this as a book, do we not? The shape of it, the feel of it, and everything. And yet, when you said book in the ancient world, you thought of something round, something long, something we typically call a scroll. And yet at this time in history, at the beginning and the early time of the church is when Christians first begin to use the codex. I'm gonna read briefly 2 Timothy 4.13. When you come, Paul says to Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, okay, books, think scrolls, and above all, the parchments, or another good way to translate that would be the codices, something that could be written on the front and the back. Again, a new form of technology. Papyrus, you could only write on one side, so that's why you would roll it up. This new form, these parchments, you could write on both sides and stick them between covers. And Michael Kruger reminds us that these codices were likely copies of Paul's letters and other important writings. So, in the ancient world, you couldn't just CC yourself on an email. <laughs> right? So typically, as these apostles are giving letters, one is being written down to sent, be sent, and one is being written down so that you remember what you sent them. And that's probably what Paul had in these parchments, copies of things he had sent to the various churches. And so there's a growing collection of these letters already being collected by the apostolic band. Further during this time, persecution leads for the need for manuscript production. Okay, when I say manuscript, think a handwritten copy because we're going to talk about when that changes in history. But also, if you come back in a couple weeks, we're going to do a fun little event so that you can see what it's like to handwrite a copy and how difficult that actually is for those of us used to typing these days. Persecution leads to a need for more because they were being confiscated and destroyed during this time. The copying was informal. It was uncontrolled. It was being done by anybody that could. They would come to church and they would find out that messengers came from another church and they brought with them a new letter of Paul that had never, they had never read at their church before and so they wanted to make their own copy of it. So often people would stay up late, stay after to get access to this, these letters that were becoming part of what we know as the Bible. So that leads to a very important question which we don't have a lot of time to figure out but the issue of canon Right now, we've reached finally the end of God giving what we call scripture or that which is contained in the Bible. Canon is a collection of sacred texts that becomes the community standard, but it's also something you could think of as the genuine works of an author. The genuine works of an author. In this case, the genuine works of God. We talk about the scriptures being breathed by God. 
Surely he knew every single one that he breathed. And that's important as we think about how did the church begin to recognize the canon? So we could ask the question, how did we get the canon? That's more of a historical question that deals with the first definition, right? How did we get it? How did it get collected and brought together? But we could also ask this question, what is the canon? What is the canon? Well, this is more of a theological question, isn't it? What is the canon? The canon is the set of books which God inspired and intended for the church. You see how that's theological and not historical? We could talk about the historical question, how the church brought them together. And yet we first need to ask that theological question. God inspired certain books. He wanted the church to have them. And that is what the canon is. And we believe that scripture superintended both, that God superintended both the inspiration and the recognition of his work. A friend tells me a story about the time when he was in Turkey and he was getting his mail at the end of his street. And as he was there, he noticed from one direction that a shepherd was leading his little flock. You'd hear the bells coming around the corner. Then he heard a strange sound because around the other corner, another shepherd was coming with his flock. And the two became hopelessly entangled right in front of his mailbox. And he just stood there watching, thinking, what are these two little teenage boys going to do? He, had, he, he just was in bewilderment at this. But then he watched as one of these little boys ran down the street and got well ahead of where he wanted his sheep to be. And just in his quiet voice, he cried out, la, 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 la. And within a few minutes, all of the sheep that were his had come down the street to where he wanted, and the others had gone on their way the other direction. And John, it tells us, that when the shepherd has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. God's church, his people, know his voice and recognized it in the scriptures. There were lots of letters. There were lots of things being circulated at the time, and yet God supernaturally intended this process to happen, that the church would recognize the voice of the shepherd in the books as they were read in the congregations so they would know what was scripture. The Christian canon was not determined by a church leader or council. You'll hear this stuff on the internet, okay? So this is one of your internet debunking moments. The, church, the, the canon was not determined by the church or council, okay? At some point, we do have church leaders talking about it, but it wasn't determined by them. It wasn't determined by government authority. That's not true. It's not historically true. The Christian canon arose through the common recognition of God's people of the prophetic and apostolic word. Okay, we could do, I, I do a whole hour-long session just on this topic. We're going to have to leave it right there. But I wanted you to at least have those assertions, the simple facts, that it wasn't determined by these groups. It arose through the common recognition of God's people. Okay, time in. We'll keep going here. And this is where things pick up their pace as we go through history. In 311, Constantine gives the edict of toleration, meaning don't persecute Christians anymore. But in 312, he actually sees a vision right before what we know as the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And in this vision, he sees this symbol that you see up on the screen there, the chi and the rho, which are the first two letters in the word for Christ. 
and he's told to paint them on the shields of his soldiers, and they win the battle. And the very next year, the Edict of Milan goes forth, which not only tolerates Christianity, but completely legalizes it within the empire. And because it's been legalized, it now becomes the preferred religion. No longer is Christianity a persecuted minority. It is now the preferred religion of the empire, and that changes some things. It changes the copying process. It's not being done by people in persecution. It's now being done in peaceful time. You can actually go down the street and hire a scribe who has much better handwriting than you to write a beautiful copy of God's word. Okay? So big changes are happening. Also during this time, we see, again, the beginnings, the rumblings of Bible translation. As God's word goes out, people want it not just in the language that everybody knows, Greek. They want it in the language they prefer. And many people preferred to do their daily life in Latin. It was the language they grew up with. So we get the old Latin translations happening during this time. And then later on, we get the Vulgate, which is now is still being used in many circles today. So you can see this Christianizing of Rome is a huge event in the history of the Bible. Now, when I say monasticism, what first comes to your mind? Is it positive or negative? By and large, most people have a negative impression of monasticism. And there are reasons for that. There are reasons for it. It has a long history. I want to give you at least one positive impression when you think of what is monasticism. Monasteries were the copying houses of biblical manuscripts, often called a scriptorium. You would not have this today if God had not been at work through these monasteries. So for all the bad things that may have happened, God was doing great good for the future and history of his church at this time. Further, during this time, we get some beautiful artwork being created because churches were becoming the illustrations of biblical truths to tell the stories of the Bible to the illiterate. Okay? Even today, we're trying to figure out ways to help people understand God's word. And uh, that was being done in church architecture at that time. Now, this is going to be a little bit uncommon. It's not um, truly monastic. But when we say monks, we typically think of people in Europe. But if you'll go back to the Holy Land, if you'll go back to the land of Israel, at that time, we have the Masoretes who are copying and preserving the Hebrew Bible at this time. Okay? So all the copying being done in the West is being done in Greek and in Latin. But over in Israel, they're actually preserving Hebrew manuscripts, one of which we still have today, the first time that all these funny little dots and lines and squiggles got added. Do you know what those are? Those are the vowels. Because before that, it was only written with consonants. But they realized that a thousand years after the time of Jesus, many people couldn't read it properly anymore and it was becoming very difficult to pass on. And so they devised this system without having to change anything. They could just write below and above and in between to give you the proper reading of the text without ever having to have heard it orally. Amazing, because this helps the reformers later on when they begin doing modern translations in the West. They can go back and actually consult the Hebrew and not just Greek and Latin copies. So in circa 930, Aharon ben Asher completes the vowels and accents of the Aleppo Codex, which you can see in Israel today underneath the Dead Sea Scrolls. Amazing. All right, event number seven. We're moving right along, aren't we? The Renaissance and the fall of Constantinople. During the time of the Renaissance, okay, you've heard of that. You may have heard of this phrase, ad fontes, or back to the sources. 
There, there was this resurgence of education after the time of the Middle Ages, and people wanted to go back to the classical learning, and that included going back to the original writings of the Bible, not just content with the Latin translation they'd been using for so many years. Also during this time, we get a revolution. Remember, we were talking about manuscripts before. Up until this time, all copies of the Bible had been copied by hand. And yet here with Gutenberg's revolution of movable type, Gutenberg didn't actually invent the printing press. He invented movable type, which made it much easier and faster to produce these manuscripts. It improved the spread of information and copies of the scriptures. There you can see a copy of the Gutenberg Bible that first came out circa 1450. Also during this time, Erasmus completes the first printed Latin Greek New Testament. So now we're getting this new form of scholarship going on where they're putting both copies next to each other. And that's going to be something that we talk about uh, in two weeks where we're talking about how do we know we have the exact words. Because when Erasmus was doing this, he was comparing dozens of manuscripts. And how did he know which one was right when there were differences? And that's the question we'll ask in a couple weeks. But also during this time, you, again, we, we typically think of Europe, but let's jump back to the east, okay? For hundreds of years, the city of Constantinople had been holding off Muslim invasions of Europe. And yet, in 1453, the city falls, which leads to a mass exodus, or right before that siege, it leads to a lot of people leaving the city, and wait, they would take with them copies of the Bible, so now you're getting a mixing of all these different manuscripts from all over the world. And again, that will be important in a couple weeks. Now you're probably familiar with this, the Reformation. And for those of you that don't know, that's a statue of Martin Luther there. But one of the principles of the Reformation was sola scriptura. And this was an important foundation stone. That it wasn't the authority of the church but it was the authority of the scriptures, that the scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith, that that principle launched the Reformation, coming back to the Bible as being the foundation of Christianity and not some extra-biblical teachings of the church, that this was the final arbiter. Also during this time, you see vernacular Bible translation begin. No longer are people content to go to church and just hear it read in Latin and not understand it anymore. Okay, being read in Jerome's Latin from a thousand years before this time. And they don't speak that anymore. So vernacular Bible translations begin during this time. Wycliffe and Tyndale were condemned for their English translations. Tyndale actually was led to death for his in 15, uh, after 1526. Luther worked on the German one, and he continued improving it to the very day of his death. On the day of his death, he was still dictating improvements for how to say certain verses better in German that he knew in Greek and in Hebrew. And, in the 16, and in, by 1600, the Bible was in a dozen European languages. This is a funny quote from the time, but listen to this. This was from Archbishop Arundel, circa 1408. English was a barbarous language, Lacking any real grammatical structure, incapable of expressing the deep and nuanced truths of the Bible. That was his argument for not translating into English. And yet Wycliffe and Tyndale, aren't you glad, risked their very lives to get it so that even the plowman could read what God said in a language that he best understood. All right, 
We're coming up to the word modern. <laughs> We're almost there. Modern missionary movement. Why is this, why am I talking about this when I'm talking about the Bible? Well, because in 1792, William Carey, often looked at as the father of modern missions, goes to India, and one of his main strategies for reaching the people of India was translate the Bible. By the end of his life, he had been involved in dozens of Bible translations to the various languages of India. And it wasn't just William Carey. Henry Martin worked in Urdu, Arabic, Persian, and Judson worked in Thai while her husband was in prison making use of her time. Robert Morrison and William Milne were involved in Chinese. Those are major languages of the world, are they not? Okay, we've already had a lot of the European ones receive it, and at the beginning of modern missions, now some of these major world languages, like Chinese and Arabic, are getting new translations so that people can read God's word. Now, there's a lot of other events that have happened uh, since that time, but uh, the, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and all these things, but I, I'm going to skip ahead here to our last event, and that would be this idea of unreached people groups. Maybe you can see the connections that we're getting here. In 1934, Cameron Townsend founds the Wycliffe Bible Translators that emphasized minority language Bible translation. See, he was in Guatemala, and he went there for the summer as a college student to sell Bibles. But the Bibles he was selling were in Spanish. That's the language of Guatemala, right? Well, nobody wanted to buy them. And so after he faced a lot of frustration, he started to pay more attention. And he noticed that the local people were not speaking in Spanish when they were in groups by themselves. And as the story goes, one of them confronted him and said, if your God's so smart, why doesn't he speak my language? And this was a real crisis. This was a real crisis for him. And he came back to the States and decided he needed to move back to Guatemala, learn their language, and translate the New Testament into a language that they could understand that spoke to their hearts. So he did that, and during the summers, he'd come back to America and help train other people because he realized there was a lot more languages that needed Bible translation. This was one of the pivotal moments in the history of the Bible. In 1974, Ralph Winter calls Christian leaders to pay more attention to something I know that you at this church have heard of, unreached people groups, those without a self-sustaining witness for Christ among them. And these two ideas of languages without the Bible and unreached people groups actually go very much together. So, 1999, Wycliffe Global Alliance called for a unified effort to see translation work begun among all the languages still needing one by the year 2025. That's coming up. That's, that's in our lifetime, isn't it? Well, where are we at? Where are we at with that? Well, there are still 1,600 languages that have nothing of God's word. They don't have anybody working on it and they don't have anybody planning to work on it right now. Now that sound, this sounds like a crazy vision. But you see, back in the year 1999, there was hundreds and hundreds more, and the pace was four times slower the way they were doing Bible translation. Since 1999, the pace has increased fourfold, and people are beginning all sorts of new languages. They may not meet this goal of 2025, and yet what it did was it accelerated the process of Bible translation through technology and through travel and through better teamwork, a global alliance of people. So, 
We're going to end our history with a little video just like we started. I'm happy to answer any questions you may have about the history of the Bible, and I hope you'll come back in a couple weeks where we actually talk about the question of how do we know we have the exact words given to us by the apostles and prophets. Hi, I'm Russ Hirschman. I'm here in the town of Koboko, northern Uganda, where we've just had the dedication of the 1,000th New Testament that Wycliffe and SIL have been involved in. This is the Teleko language of South Sudan. They're a refugee community here in Uganda. They have now received the gospel of peace. They're looking forward to peace in their country so that they can go back and share it with the rest of their people. the 1,000th New Testament, the first 500 took our first 67 years. The second 500 has only taken 17 years. It shows what God is doing to get His Word to the peoples of the world. Let's pray together. Father, I love watching that video watch it every day, watching people celebrate the arrival of God's word in their language. I've not experienced that. I'm thankful that I grew up with it, that I had people teach it to me from a very young age. We're thankful that we have such access to it in this country, God. Help us to love your word and to faithfully share it, teach it, Proclaim it so that the world around us knows how important it is, that it gives life. We pray for those who, even thousands of years after it was finally being finished, written down the way that you wanted it, those peoples that are still waiting to hear it in a language that speaks best to them. We ask that you would continue to accelerate that work, that Jesus' kingdom would be proclaimed among every language on the face of this earth. I thank you that we can be part. I thank you for a church like this that has a dedication to seeing that happen. And I ask God that you would help us to do it more and more, both in the world around us and to the ends of the earth. Thank you for teaching us tonight. Oh God, reassure us. Give us greater confidence in your word as we go from this place and help us to continue to be faithful in living it out. Through Christ we pray. Amen.